I thought of an illustration that, that came up this last week, and we went to, uh, to Roswell for a missions conference. Kim and I started, uh, you know, we're participating in that Thursday evening. And uh, because of activities all throughout the day, Friday, and then again Saturday morning, we decided to spend the night uh, there in Roswell with, uh, with a church family. And uh, Jessica kind of held, uh, Jessica and, and my dad kind of held down the house uh, here in Ackworth and got the kids to school Friday morning. Uh, and then the plan was for Michael and Mary to spend the night uh, in Roswell with us uh, Friday night uh, to finish out the conference yesterday. So as we saw them, uh, you know, the, in Friday evening and uh, started to get their things out of Jessica's car to put in our car, uh, Chris, uh, Mary had this little duffel bag and it was, you know, that's a, a good amount for one night. And then Michael had a full-size adult suitcase that I think he borrowed from granddaddy. And I said, Michael, what do you have in this suitcase? He said, oh, I've got several pairs of pants. I've got uh, three pair of underwear. I've got all kinds of socks. And I have six Rubik's Cubes in there. Uh, I said, what? why do you have all that stuff, you know, in the, in the suitcase? He says, well, just in case. You just don't know, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. So he, and we teased him throughout, you know, yesterday uh, and Friday night, that he had more than enough. Now, he probably would have gotten the last laugh had it snowed more. Uh, Friday night, he was talking about maybe, you know, it snow coming, and he says, we might get snowed in. And so I said, well, you've got plenty of clothes if we do get snowed in. But as we think about the gospel and sharing Christ and, and trying to make a difference in Metro Atlanta, it's a big city. All of us know that. We, you, know, you, you drive down Cobb Parkway and you just see hundreds and hundreds of cars and businesses. Um, in this school alone, several hundred students and families represented. There's just a lot of people in a, in a big city. So it can seem, what difference can I make just by myself? Or what difference can our small, new, little church make for Christ? Well, this week and next week, I want to look at several different scriptures. We'll start in 1 John 4. So if you want to go ahead and turn uh, there in your Bibles, we'll start in 1 John 4. But as we you know, look at several different passages, I want to encourage you that Christ is more than enough. And you've heard me say it, but it was, it's certainly intentional that we pick the name One Hope Church. Now, as humans, I'm li- I think you're probably similar to me. I like to have more than One Hope. I like to have a backup plan. I like to have, you know, a C plan. I like to have several options. But it, when it comes to salvation and when it comes to spirituality uh, and, and really a relationship, Christ is our only hope. We don't have several choices. But he's more than enough. That's all we need. Look, let's, uh, look with me in 1 John chapter 4. And I want to jump the, the whole passage. Maybe you can read later, later um, verses 7 through 21. But... Look with me in 1 John 4 and starting in verse 19. 1 John 4 and verse 19. We're going to see, first of all, that Christ is more than social justice reform. Christ is more than social justice reform. Now, to be clear, It would also be, we would be very negligent as a church to try to forget, to try to say that there was never, you know, any social injustice. We we would be negligent to say that there's not still some social injustice, you know, happening in our country. But we also need to be clear that 
the hope for our nation is not primarily in a social justice uh, movement. We see in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, it says, We love because what? Because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So there, there, there's no governmental law that will produce, that will bring about godly love. That's only because Jesus Christ has shown his love toward us. And you may remember Romans 5, 8, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So because he's shown that sacrificial and personal and ongoing love to us, that's the only reason that we can show love to others. So if we, if we try to go about it by, well, you, know, you need to have this law and that law and, and try to mandate it and, and bring it about just by laws. Now, laws are great. But ultimately, the one hope that we have, and it's more than enough, again, is Jesus Christ, who loved us and then gives us the opportunity and the ability to love others. Governmental laws will never produce godly love. Verse 21 of 1 John chapter 4 says, In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And in the passage it says, you know, if you say you love God but you hate your brother, well, then the love of God's really not in you. So for a, a follower of Christ, there is no space for being uh, a racist. There is no space for even uh, being preju- uh, prejudiced against an older, and against the younger, or the younger against the older, or, or whatever background it may be. Because as we love, and as we're loved by Jesus Christ, and then as we follow in, in that example and that model, then God says, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I can't, it'd be foolish for me to, to come Sunday morning and sing and say, yes, I love God vertically. It's just kind of these people that I really don't like a whole lot. No, because I love God and because God loves me so much, that's how I can love horizontally. And that's how you can love me. Because there's certainly times and things that I do that aren't quite so lovable. And there's, there's quirks that I have and weird things in my personality. And I'm a sinner. And so sometimes I offend and sometimes I am negligent to be sensitive and to be caring. And so because God loved you, then you can love me through Christ. We also see society's programs will never substitute the Savior's peace. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2 and starting in verse 11. Society's programs will never substitute the Savior's peace. As we look at this, these are some reasons why, even though we've, I think we have made a lot of progress in the United States of America in uh, social justice and, and things of that nature, we're still not there and we'll never get there apart from Jesus Christ. Society's programs will never substitute the Savior's peace because we see in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Now notice some descriptions that are going to come next. In Ephesians 2, 
in verse 12. Having no hope and without God in the world. That's not a bright description. But unless you're here and you're a Jew, that describes all of us Gentiles at one point. Having no hope without God in this present world, but now, verse 13, and I love, there's several passages in Scripture where, and we're going to look at another one, I believe, next week, where it gives some descriptions and it, it shows our lostness, and then it comes in with that three-letter, just powerful word that says, but God but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by, by who or by what? By the blood of Christ. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, let, me, let me just stop for a minute. You may say, okay, well, you know, I've read that passage, but you must understand there were also generations of tension represented between the Jews and the Gentiles. This wasn't just a nonchalant kind of easy thing, but Christ was more than enough to save Gentiles and then from the, the, the believing Gentiles and the believing Jews, those who did recognize Jesus Christ as the one and true Messiah, those believing Jews and those believing uh, Gentiles, then Christ made into one body and unified because he is our peace. So as you're tempted to think, well, you know, but... It's difficult, it's different, you know, it's a little bit different here in Metro Atlanta because, or with this group, or with that group because, no, Christ is the same. His peace is enough. So as we continue on in verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I don't think it's a mistake that, that we, we do not see in the New Testament. You know, after the Jews come, you, you certainly see some Jews who want to go back, you know, to some of their rituals and things like that. But, and there's continued teaching of, no, Christ is enough. He did it all. It's only in him. He's the only name under heaven, Acts 4.12 says, that we can be saved. But you don't see, well, you know, this is the Jewish church. So Jews, you go over there. And, and Gentiles, this is the Gentile church. And you go over there. No, the gospel is for every single person. It doesn't matter the background. It doesn't matter the language. It doesn't matter the, the race. It is for every single background because Christ is our peace. 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but get this, you are fellow citizens with the saints. The notice this, and members of the household of God. One thing I appreciated that uh, Ryan McCammick, he's a church planner on the other side of Atlanta, and he mentioned this week, he said, church, church is not like family, church is family. 
Church is not just like family. Church is family because we serve, and, and if we're followers of Christ, then we have the same Father, God the Father. So we're members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, verse 20. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so many terms there, the fellow citizens, the the members of the household fit together. So you take the Jews and the Gentiles who were definitely not fit together. I mean, they would take long routes to, to go out of the way so they wouldn't have to go through Jewish territory or Gentile territory. And there was much separation. But now the passage says, no, through Jesus Christ, who is our peace, and because of the blood shed on the cross, then they are jointly fit together. And they don't just tolerate each other. Now they're growing together. That is as a result of the Savior's peace. It wasn't a society program. It wasn't a governmental law. But it was because of the Savior, Jesus Christ, peace that he offers. We also see that society's reformational mandates will never be as effective as the Redeemer's messengers of reconciliation. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Society's reformational mandates will never be as effective as the Redeemer's messengers of reconciliation. Now, I do say with great sorrow that there have been times in the past where even the church has been the cause of great harm to the cause of Christ in this area. But those who, are, who, who faithfully follow Scripture and who faithfully follow the model of Jesus Christ will always be more effective as messengers of reconciliation than any mandate that can be passed down. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 5. Let's look together at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Isn't that a blessing? doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what, you, what you've done or what's been done to you. But as you come and as you accept Jesus Christ and the gift of salvation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then notice this. And then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So because I'm reconciled to Jesus Christ, now I have the opportunity to tell others, hey, listen, you can, you can be too. goes on. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Now notice the language that's used in the next phrase. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This isn't just, we don't just have like a, an interesting product to offer. You know, we, we don't just have kind of a, a, a cool deal, you know, to, to, to hand out. I've had the privilege to um, volunteer a little bit with the school and I've visited some of the restaurants in the area for this Heritage Festival event. 
and trying to, to garner up some gift cards from restaurants that can be given out at the end of the, the event. So I had some letters from the school on letterhead, and I, I would kind of practice before I'd go into the restaurant, you know, who, I'm gonna, who am I going to ask for, and what's my little spiel going to be? And, and so I, I've got this kind of idea, and I say, hey, you know, um, are you the manager? Okay, great. My name's David Huffman, and I'm the parent you know, representative of Northwest Classical Academy for the Heritage Festival event. And we have an opportunity for you as a restaurant to uh, help the community and also bring a lot of exposure uh, to your restaurant if you would be willing to give two $25 gift cards. Would that be something you'd be interested in doing? Now, most of them have said, yeah, that, that'd be great. You know, and, you know let, me, let me get it for you. But another restaurant said, no, you know, we're just, we, you know, we're not going to do it this time. And I wasn't really hurt by that. I didn't walk away just, you know, devastated that, that I was turned down and that they weren't going to give, you know, gift cards. Because it was just, it's just an event. It just, it's just going to pass by. But the gospel is not that. We can't live week and month after month and year after year around neighbors and around coworkers and around classmates and just think, well, I mean, this is just something that I like. This is something that's important to me. But no, this is super important for the rest of eternity. True peace can only be found in Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul uses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses the, the language like, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're not asking people to be reconciled to One Hope Church. We're not asking people to, to adopt you know, all the preferences that we have as a church family. We're inviting people to, to get, be reconciled to God the Father who sent God the Son to give his life on the cross for them. Be reconciled to God. Then verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. Boy, I'm thankful I don't have to come up with my own righteousness because I'll fail. I'll never, I'll never reach the level. In fact, Romans says that uh, we will always fall short of the glory of God. Some in the room, and you maybe have heard this illustration in some of the one-on-one -on -one Bible studies I've done, I like to use this when talking about salvation. And some of you are more athletic than I am. As Caleb walked in and I was sitting behind him, I, th it, I think Caleb is still growing taller, it seems. Or maybe his haircut is, is like more thin or something, but he looked taller this morning. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm not growing taller. So if Caleb and I were, you know, if, if everybody was watching and we, we run down and we try to, try to jump and touch the, the rim, Caleb, I'm pretty sure, would be able to do that without much trouble. I would not. But if we go outside to a light pole... And then we say, okay, Caleb, jump as high as you can. And I'm going to do the same. Neither one of us would come anywhere close to getting to the top. He might get tall, he might get higher, so we could notch it a little bit higher, maybe even a lot higher, but he's not going to come anywhere close to the top. And God's God's grace, God's uh, he, he's sinless and will never reach his level on our own by doing our own good works. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now what kind of messengers should we be? Well, messengers of reconciliation who love God with all their heart. 
Remember, Jesus was asked, what are, the, what are the, the greatest commandments? And God says, well, the first and greatest commandment is that you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But then he said in Matthew 22, 36 through 39, but the second is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. So that's going to make a difference, a huge difference in social justice. As, we're, as we follow Christ, as we understand that he loved us first, and then because of that, that's the only way that I can love. That's the only way that people can love me. And then as I understand, I'm a messenger of reconciliation. So this isn't something that I can manipulate. It's not because I'm just a cool guy that I can get people to like me, but that I can tell them about Jesus Christ who offers true peace. And because of that reconciliation, then we can be made one and we can serve together and grow together and laugh together and do life together and bring glory to him as we, we each are loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and then loving our neighbors as ourselves. Messengers of reconciliation who demonstrate pure religion, James 1 talks about. Now, what is pure religion? Well, a couple of things that James showed to be very important. It says to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. So we should be sensitive to that. And the, the idea of visit here is not like a quick little chat. You know, don't, don't think, you know, nursing home, and you go in and say, hey, oh, you know, great, and how you doing? But to visit is the idea of caring, of making a difference. The same Greek word is used, in fact, in Luke one sixty eight. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Same Greek word. So this, this idea of visit is not just a, a shallow, kind of quick, you know, in and out. But it's, a, it's an ongoing concern. That's part of pure religion. That's part of what will bring about true social justice that can only be found in Christ. Messengers of reconciliation who both enjoy and share God's blessings. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17 through 19. We're to be messengers of reconciliation who both enjoy and share God's blessings. There's not a need for governmental mandates to redistribute wealth if we are following Scripture, as we'll see here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Notice this in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. In essence, hey, t- tell them, you know, don't be proud. You may remember in James as we were finishing that, and some, some in James, in the book of James, we see were saying, yeah, I'm going to go to this city, and I'm going to go to that city, and I'm going to make a profit. And James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, well, what you really should be saying is, Lord willing, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. Because only by God's grace and the strength that he gives us can we do anything. So Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, then, uh, to 19, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. One of our friends in middle Georgia posted something on Facebook that with the increasing cost of gasoline, there's, there's like new thievery. And so her, her car gas tank was drilled into and the gas 
was suctioned out of her car. I've heard this happening in buses and trucks, but her little car was drilled into and gas was stolen out of that. So our riches can, can go and come very quickly. Just a, few, uh, just a tornado or a hurricane or uh, you know, a flood. I mean, very quickly our financial status can change drastically. A couple days in the ICU, a couple days in the emergency room, and you get some big bills, and it's like all of a sudden, well, I thought I had everything in order. Paul says, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Why? Because he's more than enough. He's better than riches that we might have. But on God who richly provides us with everything, now notice this, to enjoy. So as God does bless, then there's not a nece- it's not necessary to feel guilty about that. As believers, it's not a sin to, to have wealth. As, as a believer, it's not a sin to, to have nice things. Now, it's sinful if we put those things above God. It's a sin if we, put, if we make those small letter G gods and we begin to, to, everything in life is all about acquiring this or that and having more of, of these things and not being good stewards but we see here, he's, he says, okay, first of all, they shouldn't be proud. They shouldn't trust in their riches, but on God. But then he says, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, verse 18 says. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So in, in God's economy, this would happen individually, but I believe it would also happen between church families because we see that in Scripture. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Jerusalem church who had been the strong church and kind of like the, the big, you know, first local church, but then all of a sudden, they're, they're, there's a famine and there's hard times. And so the Macedonian church and other churches, Gentile believers, begin to share with the Jerusalem church. That can still be done today. As we ministered in Brazil, we were recipients, the church plants there were recipients time and time again of many, many local churches who sacrificially gave to help our churches there to grow and to build and to get established. I pray that one hope, will, be, and we've done this a little bit, but I pray that we'll be able to do even more where we'll be on the giving end. And we've received so much already, but I pray that we would be on the giving end and be sensitive to churches in our, in our area or even far, far away to, to help and say, yes, we're ready. This is not just for us to hoard, but we want to be, be channels of God's resources. So, but on God who originally provides us with everything to enjoy, there to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That is true living. That's what life is all about. LG, life is good. Well, this is a better definition. It's not a cool appliance or whatever, but it, this is truly what life is all about. Messengers of reconciliation who both enjoy and share God's blessings. I thought this definition or this quote was interesting. It's, it was from gotquestions.org. 
And it says basically there is a tension between a God-centered approach to social justice and a man-centered approach to social justice. The man-centered approach sees the government in the role of savior. Bringing in a utopia through government policies. The God-centered approach sees Christ as savior. Bringing heaven to earth when he returns. And at his return, Christ will restore all things and execute perfect justice. Until then, Christians express God's love and justice by showing kindness and mercy. So on one end, there's a lot of mandates, there's a lot of policies, there's a lot of laws, there may be movements. But in the end, it's not going to bring about long-lasting and true social justice. We have the answer. Not because we're smart, not because we're intelligent, but because we're followers of Jesus Christ. And we can say, listen, I want to help you to be reconciled to God just as I was. And just as I desperately still need the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to introduce you to the Savior who can bring you true and lasting peace. And no, it doesn't matter what language you speak. No, it doesn't matter what country you came from. No, it doesn't matter what car you drive. We can be the same and fit together and growing in Jesus Christ. So certainly, Christ is more than social justice reform, but secondly, Christ is more than political reform. Christ is more than political reform. We are well into midterm campaigning season. Well into it. So we're already seeing a lot of articles and ideas of, well, you know, this is going to affect the midterm elections. All the gas prices, you know, the war and this and that, or somebody said this. And it's almost as if both, you know, groups are waiting for the next bombshell that can shift, you know, to, to favor their party one way or the other. It's not enough. In the end, it's not going to bring about lasting stability and lasting peace. Let's look at Christ's model after all. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We see that Christ came to save sinners, not to salvage society. Christ came to save sinners, not to salvage society. 1 Timothy 1, 14 and 15 says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's what Christ came to do. He didn't come primarily to say, okay, I'm going to reform society as I come. He could have. He certainly, you know, has all the wherewithal and the knowledge, and he he could have done it, but he didn't. He came to save sinners. Christ came to redeem the godless, not to reform the government. You know, James and John, and I I can't remember, we looked at this, I believe, in our relationships uh, study during a growth groups, but James... And John asked Jesus, and one of the gospel accounts even says their mom got involved in this request to to ask Jesus, you know, can we sit at your left and your right hand when you come into the kingdom? Now, in one of the passages, if not both, but I I know one of the passages I looked at yesterday, Christ had just said that he would die and that he would, you know, be buried and and raised. He had just said that. But there doesn't seem to be any response from the disciples. And then shortly after, James and John says, Oh, hey, can, can, we, can we ask something and you'll do it for us? 
And then they say, we want to be at your left hand and right hand. And I think they, they had full expectation that they were going to go into this earthly kingdom soon to be established by Jesus Christ. They were very confused. We see also in Matthew chapter 22, Pharisees and Herodians, they weren't really friends. They had differing views, but they both hated Christ. So the, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians got together and they, they, they sent some of their disciples together to kind of try to catch Jesus in asking him about paying taxes. And Christ wisely answered in Matthew 22 and verse 21, the latter part of that, it says, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now we know for a fact there was a lot of corruption going on in the tax system back in that day. We know for a fact that the tax system was oppressive to many. So it could have been a very uh, widespread expectation for Jesus, I mean, if you're the Messiah, you could change this. Why allow the oppression to go on? Why allow the, the, the corruption to continue? Well, it's because he came to save sinners, primarily, not to salvage society, not to reform the government. When Pilate asked Christ if he was the king of the Jews, in John 18, verse 36, Jesus answered this way in John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then later in verse 37, it says, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, I'm not saying that we just should completely back out of politics and we should just completely not have a voice. I'm not saying that. But I am saying if, we, if our voice is much louder about politics and governmental policies than it is about Jesus Christ, our Savior, then we have a problem. Because we're, we're shifting and we're pointing people and giving this false idea, this is the hope. This is how we can change this or that or right this wrong or right that wrong. Whatever side you may be on on this political spectrum. But we see in Scripture, that wasn't Christ's model. He didn't come to reform the government. He came to redeem the godless. He didn't come to, to salvage society. He came to save sinners, as we see in his own life. So what does this mean to, for me as a Christ follower? Look with me in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 8. I have a mandate. You, if you know Christ as your Savior, you also have a mandate as, as a Christ follower. Romans chapter 1 and verse 8 says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world doesn't say your political views. doesn't say your favorite candidate. It says your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Notice that? In the gospel of his Son. That without ceasing I mention you. And then jump to verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Both to the wise and to the foolish, okay, what will the obligation be? Let's see. 
So I, verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, not conservatism, for it, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We see those two groups again. For in the righteousness of God, again, not necessarily just my political views, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There are biblical principles that sometimes we do stand firmly, and if if it is a biblical principle, we should stand firmly on that. If it happens to be a political view, okay, but we need to first say, I stand firm because it's in Scripture. This is my basis. So it doesn't matter what candidate goes along. It doesn't matter what party flip-flops on this topic. I'm going to be the same because it's in here. I'm based on this because of Jesus Christ, not because of some, some man or some woman or a group. And we need to be clear as Christians that that is our focus. That is our loyalty first and foremost. Even as we engage you know, with others on social media, may it be said of us that more often than not, we're pointing people to Jesus Christ and we are with our, with our mouth and with our, with our lives and with everything that we do, that we give a huge testimony that we believe and practice and talk that Jesus is more than enough. That it's not the political candidates that we have our hope in. Are we going to be involved in in politics and exercise our right to vote? Yes. Should we stand up for issues? Once again, if if they're scriptural, and we should do that with love and, and, and firmly, but because of Christ. So a couple things based on this scripture. Um, in practical ways, we must focus our efforts on proclaiming eternal life more than on preserving our way of life. We must focus more on proclaiming eternal life than preserving our way of life. And Sometimes those can get confused. Well, if this happens or if that changes, then it's going to change my way of life, how I know it. It's going to change kind of our, 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 our style here. We need to proclaim eternal life even more. We must place our hope in Christ rather than in a candidate. We must not minimize a politician's sins in order to maximize his successes. Now we need to realize that all of us are sinners. So as I want people to show me grace, so I should also show grace to politicians and I should pray for those who are in leadership and those who are for running leadership. But I also should be careful that as a Christian, I don't minimize my favorite politician of choice, his sins, I don't minimize his sins and maximize his his successes just to get him or her to move forward. That's not biblical. Because our focus and our loyalty is with Jesus Christ who is sinless. So we'll never be embarrassed. Nobody's ever going to dig up anything on Jesus, you know, 50 years ago. Or did you know that when Jesus was in high school, he said this, never. We'll never have to be embarrassed. We can always stand firm. But as we're involved in, in these issues, if we are, uh, try to be as best as we can, always clear that Jesus is my first and foremost, foremost loyalty. And even some of those who I might vote for, I readily admit and recognize and, e- and even mourn 
some of the sins and some of the ways that they displease God. And we're not just going to pass over and make it look like it's not that bad because we want to elevate Christ first and foremost. I've heard, you know, in the past, well, we're, we're electing a president, not a preacher. I understand that. I understand that to an extent, but we also, I think it's important to look at character. Aren't those principles in Scripture? Aren't strong leaders supposed to be humble and servants and servant leaders? That's what we see of Jesus Christ, the, the, the best and divine model of leadership. We should regularly pray for the salvation of our political leaders, whether they be Democrat or Republican. should pray. Say, so God, help them. Give them clarity. Help them to understand the love of Jesus Christ. Help them as they face some very difficult decisions to know that you as king of kings can, add, can give so much wisdom. May they come to know Christ as your savior. Don't be pulled into the foolishness of adopting disrespectful and perverted double meaning phrases to chide your political enemies. No, I have not been on your social media account. So if, if any of you have done that, you can erase it this afternoon and I'll never know. I, I honestly have not been stalking any of you. I rarely get on social media. But my heart hurts as, I, as I'm in the city and I see sometimes uh, people driving around with huge flags and these big phrases uh, you know, that are disrespectful and they're perverted, even though I may not agree with, with, with policies but we need to be careful, especially as believers, that we don't begin to use worldly tactics to try to gain worldly power. Because when we do that, we're, we're declaring with a huge voice, Christ isn't enough, and so I'm putting my hope in so-and-so or this movement and against so-and-so and that person. Don't be pulled into the foolishness of adopting disrespectful and perverted double-meaning phrases that chide your political enemies. Don't be duped into the foolishness of name-calling anyone you hope to conquer. It's not a sign of a strong leader just to start calling everybody names. Here at Northwest Classical Academy, kindergarten through sixth grade, the teachers don't teach the kids that. They're trying to teach the children, yeah, you need to be kind. You need to interact well with your peers. As they get older, there certainly there's going to be debates and there's going to be discussions, and I'm sure even passionate things, but there, it will be taught to show respect. You know, as we stoop to these practices, our testimony for Christ is tainted, and our effectiveness for the Lord can be overshadowed with some of these worldly and sinful ways to, to combat differences that we have. Lastly, we must not equate a political party with a profession of faith. We must not equate a political party with a profession of faith. I think I've shared this with some of you, but I was, I was on a major highway, and the billboard message was something like this. It's big letters, and it was posted something like this. There's coming a day when every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Anybody remember what passage that's from? Philippians 2. So huge, you know, up on the billboard. But then unfortunately, right after that, in even larger letters, 
where it says, and every, you know, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then in huge letters it says, even the Democrats. Okay. That really shows the love of Christ. That's really going to help a lot of Democrats to go, oh, yes. Boy, I want to know Jesus. I want to hang around the Christ followers. Sadly, I believe there will be millions of Republicans that will not bow their knee and declare that Jesus is Lord until it's too late. Many Republicans, millions. Sadly, there will be Republican politicians and followers who use the name of Christ but who never knew him as their Savior and will therefore hear from Christ, Matthew 7, 23, the last, latter part, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. My intention is not to, to name call. My intention is to try to, in a broad way, point us back to Scripture as we're going into kind of election season as, and as we're, we're seeing a lot of a, a continual polarization of our, of our world and our, and our nation. That we would speak even louder and live even louder. Christ is our one and only hope. And that is our loyalty. And he is the one who can provide true and lasting peace. I'm encouraged, I'm excited next week as we look to, to see that Christ is more than educational reform. We'll also look to see that Christ is more than our own limitations. One of the verses we'll look at were called earthen vessels, or in some versions, jars of clay. And the last thing we'll see next week is that Christ is more than enough for the world's lostness. So as you and I sometimes may feel overwhelmed, as you and I sometimes may get very discouraged as we drive around and we see the lostness of Metro Atlanta, maybe see the lostness even within family, family and friends that we love dearly, may, be, may we be encouraged that Christ is more than enough even for the lostness of Metro Atlanta. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we finish this morning?